Hey, Pitchfork listeners, I want to tell you about another podcast we think you'll like. It's a smart show with a dirty name that tackles a lot of the same issues we talk about here on Pitchfork Economics. It's called Uneffing the Republic. Not its real name, but you know what I mean. So just type in the swear word and you'll find it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The show breaks down complicated issues with practical policy examples and outcomes and an appropriate amount of outrage and swearing. They don't just shoot from the hip, even when they're talking about our joint nemesis, Milton Friedman, a recurring character in the show. In fact, I recently listened to their episode F. Milton Friedman, again, not the real title, but we don't have an explicit rating and don't want to get one. And I loved it. Deep dive on Milton Friedman and how he really effed up our economy. So listen now at unftr.com or search UNFTR on your favorite podcast app. Whenever you talk to people, the conversation almost inevitably drifts to what was it like for you and your family mm -hmm. when the pandemic began and how did you respond? How has your life changed? It's fascinating to get a historian's take on uh, current events. Billions of people furloughed all over the world, family life disrupted by kids being sent home from school everywhere in the world simultaneously. Like, there's never been anything like that before. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, so, Nick, uh, every morning I wake up and wish that this uh, whole COVID pandemic was over. And history. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that it was history. And one encouraging sign that it might be is that there's a new book on the crisis uh, by historian Adam Tooze, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And uh, that's written in the past tense. And I'd I'd like to believe it's true <laughs> that it that the pandemic <laughs> is actually history. <laughs> yeah, that it's that it's history that it shook the world economy and that the shaking has all been done with uh unfortunately not quite yet. Yeah. But that said, it it's fascinating to get a historian's take on uh current events. And uh Adam Tooze is a remarkable thinker. I I know he's one of your favorites, isn't he? Oh, I've been, you know, you know me, Nick, I am yeah. a, uh, uh, for work, I read a lot of books about economics, but for pleasure, <laughs> I read a lot of works about history. I, I've, uh, I'm a recovering history major and, uh, I, I've really enjoyed his previous books. Uh, I'm currently reading his, uh, his book on the economics of Nazi Germany and World Perfect. War II. Yeah. And of course, uh, Adam wrote Crashed, which was uh, really the definitive history of the, the 2008 financial collapse, right. uh, the response to it, and the euro crisis that followed. And right. so it's really fascinating to see his take on the response to COVID uh, right. and, and what we learned or didn't learn from the, the previous economic crisis. Right. And uh, given that Adam wrote you know, one of the defining books on 
the world's response to the global financial crisis, his take on the world's response to this crisis will be one that will be particularly interesting and well-informed. So um, with that, let's talk to Adam. I'm Adam Tooze. I teach history at Columbia University in New York City. And uh, I've my new book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy, is out in September. Uh, obviously, the book's just coming out. I, I we, we got a PDF, haven't had a chance to read the whole book. But I have spent the last couple of weeks uh, reading your previous books. And I'm kind of struck uh, considering the the periods you've covered, World War One, World War II, the Great Recession, uh, you start off in uh, describing your own disbelief at what was happening in 2020. Uh, if you could sum that up, at, at least starting from the personal perspective, what was so unbelievable about last year? Well, it, it was the shutdown, right? I mean, um, I, I started the year in, in Africa, actually, and, and um, I was on the way back from Tanzania by way of Istanbul Airport, March 6th, that Friday, and all of a sudden, the sort of headlines that we've been dimly following. So I had really a kind of eccentric, right, external perspective on this from being in East Africa at that moment. So you sort of heard the news that something bad was happening and it was spreading from China. And I'm somebody who follows the news quite closely. And I got to this giant airport that Erdogan has built in, um, in Istanbul. And all of a sudden, people from all over the world were wearing these freakish masks. Like, you know, this... <laughs> Just, you know, at that time, no one kind of figured out N95s or anything. So it was like, you know, construction workers mask. It was like a horror movie. <laughs> and, and there was this sudden shock of just, oh, my God, this is for real. And this is going to affect everyone, literally everywhere in the world. And it's going to affect me and my family and the city that I live in, in a way that nothing in my lifetime has ever come close to matching. I think those people who've maybe lived through a really big war have an experience of involuntary enrollment in capital H history. I was in Berlin in 1989. I guess it had a little bit of that kind of a feel, right? You just happen wow. to be in a place when all of a sudden something that evidently is going to be written into the history books is happening all around you. And you struggle to make sense of it and figure out, you know, whether walking the dog still makes sense. And so it was really, uh, and then as we know, as you know, if you're interested in the economy, stuff just started happening that none of us, I think, would have thought possible. I mean, basically, the thing we should have done in February is shut down global air travel. And that was unthinkable at the time, right? Just flat out, you would have been laughed out of the room if you suggested yeah. it. And by mid-March, everyone's doing it everywhere in the entire world. And global GDP falls by 20% by the second week of April in a matter of weeks. And, you know, in the recorded annals of economic history, such as we're familiar with them, there's no moment like that ever before. Billions of people furloughed all over the world, family life disrupted by kids being sent home from school everywhere in the world simultaneously. Like, there's never been anything like that before. When you look at the economic data from 2020, uh, in future books, papers, studies, whatever, you just have to put a giant asterisk on the year. Yes, yeah. you, yeah. you can't even publish the charts. No, no, <laughs> right? exactly. Because, they don't yeah. fit, right? You know, remember right. that New York Times front cover where they kind of just devoted the whole cover to the unemployment spike, and that was just the beginning. I mean, you know, yeah. it, that whatever there was that Thursday morning, eight thirty, when they came out with the six point what, what was it, six point five million number that had signed on in the last week. I mean, it was just 
like you say, yeah, economists are going to have a hard time running any of their statistical work on this because you basically have to bracket that entire period because the numbers are so freakish. And then they produce rebound effects, you know? So uh, if you didn't know the history, but just looked at the charts, you would think an asteroid hit Earth <laughs> or something. Uh, absolutely. No, because you, it would have to be something like that. It doesn't look like a war. It doesn't look like a regular recession. It looks like something much weirder. And it's so comprehensive. I mean, right. virtually every economy in the world is in, in, in recession. So at what point in the pandemic did you begin to see the story of it shaping up? Well, the funny kind of thing, the reason I wrote the book is that I'd done this book on the 2008 crisis. And as you know, so I flew back on the Friday, that was the six. And then we got to the weekend and that was the OPEC weekend when it turned out the Russians and the Saudis weren't going to be able to get together. And so oil prices started selling off on Asia by, you know, Sunday. And then markets opened in the West on Monday the 9th and all hell broke loose. And at that point, my email, my phone just started going off because the journalists and folks that had read the 2008 book, which really synthesized the coverage by the journal, the Times, the Financial yeah. Times of that crisis, all just went, hang on, there's this guy, like, you know, we should talk to him. Because yeah. this is the same thing again. It's like repo markets. It, it right. really looked in that moment like a rerun of the worst moments of Lehman That's in right. 08. You mentioned, um, Adam, some of the preliminary numbers that sum up the scale of the economic disruption, but um, if they're handy, could you share more with our listeners? Well, the, the big, big one, the one that sums everything up is this GNP number, and one shouldn't just skid over that, right? For GDP to fluctuate by 20% is unheard of because it's such a huge thing. It's like, you know, the Pacific Ocean shrinking by 20%. You know, if that happens, you would expect the mother of all tsunamis coming next, right? The yeah. tide is going out and you are seeing something you've never seen before. Yeah. So for that to happen- Run for the hills. Run for the hills. <laughs> I mean, this is just, and and I think that inspired, well, the unemployment numbers in the US are the, you know, the daily, the weekly beat of this, that Thursday morning number that came out that, that just, just kicked up, right? Starting at four and then maximizing, I think it, late April, the, the biggest number came out, 6.5%. 6.5 million signing on that around the world, we think that 3.3 billion workers globally were under one or other type of furlough regime. And we think that 1.6 billion young people were furloughed from education. And we all know the havoc that that wreaks in family life and work life balance and people trying to juggle their lives. So this is a shock of a type we've never seen before in India, which, you know, has a giant labor market, as you'd expect, second largest country in the world. We think the unemployment rate peaked in the early summer at 25%. Now, think about that in a country where hundreds of millions of people are really just scraping by. Yeah. Two, three dollars a day poverty. And all of that casual labor, all of those jobs just just disappear. Um, places like South Africa are just devastated by this shock, and they they still are. I mean, South Africa is a it, you know country struggling with probably the highest rate of persistent unemployment in the world, and and the the levels of poverty that they're experiencing all the way down to the present day, hence the rioting in South Africa this year. So those are some, I think, of the really extraordinary shocks for the United Kingdom. Um, the Bank of England estimates that this is the worst uh, recession. Over the whole year, not just the immediate shock, which was terrible everywhere, but for the whole year in 300 years. 
So Britain has wow. particularly long economic data series. Yeah, that takes us back. That is to unbelievable. The 300 years is Louis XIV, the guy who <laughs> built the famous palace at Versailles. Britain had fought a long war with him. And then we had an epically bad winter, which wiped out the harvest. All those, you know, picturesque images of London with the Thames iced over. And that was really bad if you were in an agrarian economy. It makes a nice chocolate box, but it's terrible for farmers. And that's the sort of scale that we're talking about here, a 300-year shock. So like nothing we've ever seen before. So as a historian, uh, very familiar with the uh, government response to previous shocks like this, mm. uh, what was your expectation in the moment? You know, you you had written Crashed, the, the book about the, the anemic uh, response to the Great Recession in much of the world. What, what were you expecting to see? Well, the... The worry that immediately emerged confirmed your worst fears was in Europe. So when the crisis hit, Europe didn't cope very well immediately. They were very slow to recognize that this was going to be a first world rich country problem. Uh, and then when it hit, they immediately splintered. And then they started arguing. And by the end of March, April, very worried telephone calls were going on between the capitals of Europe about whether or not this was going to be another Eurozone crisis. And it really looked like that. And it was particularly, you know, a bitter kind of irony of history, you might call it, or maybe just tragic, that it was Italy that was hit worst, right? If you remember early on, the, before New York became the centre of the right. epidemic in the West, oh, no. in early March, it was it was Italy, northern Italy. Yeah, and it's terrible. The weak link. Yeah, and it's the weak, absolutely, and it's the weak link in the Eurozone economy because debt to GDP there started out the crisis at over 130% of GDP and was now rapidly heading over 150% of GDP. So you get Eurozone debt anxiety. The other thing that you know we saw in early March that was terrifying, terrifying properly, uh, was what was going on in the US Treasury market, which was in some ways even worse than what we saw in 2008, because the Treasury market is normally, of course, the safe haven of last resort. You run out of mortgage-backed securities, you run out of Lehman, and where you go to park your money safely is into Treasury bills and 10-year and Treasuries. And that market was, was not functioning in the second week of March, second and third week of March. Then the British gilt market also began to basically malfunction in the third week. And the question then was, what are they going to do? And, and to be honest, you know, the Fed gets a lot of credit now in retrospect, but I actually think they were a little slow. You know, that late February, early February, early March, they could have acted more decisively than they did. But then they, then they really flipped the switch. And we saw 2008, you know, on steroids, almost a order of magnitude, almost 10 times larger, the interventions by the end of the month. And by the summer, the Europeans have got their act together too. And once again, turn, turning on the money tap didn't just uh, save the U.S. It also saved uh, Europe, and uh, the, the the Fed played a big role in saving the global economy. This is the crucial thing, right? That the dollar is the world's currency, and essentially all of the world outside the zone, which is most directly attached to China. And so if you see a increase in the value of the dollar, which is what we saw in February and early March, people are running to safety into US assets. This puts a huge squeeze on anyone who isn't long assets, but is long liabilities in dollars. So basically, if you're a dollar debtor, all of a sudden, your liabilities- You owe way more. You yeah. owe more, way more in terms of local currency. That's a nightmare. And 
so what begins to happen then is is that a credit squeeze ripples out across the you know so-called emerging markets, the middle-income countries, which are normally one of the dynamos of global growth. That's incredibly bad news. So when the Fed put its foot on the gas in second week, third week of March, and then just as continued to push dollars out into the world economy, this makes life a lot easier for the Brazils of this world, the Indonesias, big chunks of the world economy, right? G20 members very significant pieces and, and very large societies like, you know, 200 million people in Brazil, over 200 million people in Indonesia. These are these are huge population hubs and having a, an avalanche of dollars coming away just makes life a lot easier. So it's really remarkable. The emerging market central banks actually did sort of quantitative easing. They did. They loosened their monetary policy, even as the crisis struck, which is the opposite of what we would normally expect. It actually almost defines an emerging market. That when the going gets rough, it has to tighten because people get worried about them and start pulling their money out. And instead, yeah. what we saw in 2020 was they were sufficiently confident, A, and B, the Fed had created an environment in which they could, in fact, reduce their interest rates as the crisis hit. And that's the first time, really, that we've seen that across the entire world economy. Yeah. So in, in many ways, we did the opposite of austerity. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the thing about austerity is like it, it, you don't generally do it in the middle of a crisis. I mean, that would be really suicidal. Austerity after 2008 didn't kick in until 2010. So the jury's still out on that. We could still have an austerity push, you know, a year or yeah. two down the line. That's the big question mark about the Biden administration in many yeah. people's minds. But certainly in the moment, no, the taps were open and Fiscal policy as well on a huge scale, taxing, you know, tax cuts and, and, and huge government spending pretty much across the world. Again, it's structured by where you are in the global pecking order, but everyone did something. Right. Right. So, so it wasn't just the, the monetary policy. We had a, a ton of uh, stimulus on the fiscal side. Um, uh, I want, I'll get back to the U.S. in a moment, but... Um, how much of this was a break from the past in Europe? In Europe, it really is a surprise. So, um, I mean, the Europeans are famous for having basically failed to mount a serious fiscal policy response after 2008. And then by means of tightening, having brought on the crisis, which really lasted from 2010 through to 2015, 2016, you could say. Right. And this time around, not so much. Um, and there's two layers to that, right? So... The, at the national government level and the national economies of Europe, you know, the, Germany is obviously a really big one. It's like most of the east coast of the US, but say Italy is the size of a Texas or something like that. They do national fiscal policy independently. And basically, the Europeans said, look, do whatever you need. No rules apply, because normally to manage the tensions within the eurozone, there are these tight fiscal rules which prevent countries from going it alone and doing their own adventurous fiscal policy. So those those rules came off. The ECB, which is crucial here, the central bank, is buying everyone's bonds. So countries like Greece and Italy now can borrow at negative interest rates. It's mind-blowing compared to what we saw after 2008. And then, and this is the sort of architectural piece, the historical piece, is they did this deal called Next Gen EU, which isn't giant in terms of the scale of spending, but it's very significant in that it's funded through debt taken up by Brussels. So it doesn't show up on the balance sheet of any of the European member states, which is great news for an Italy, for instance, which has got enough debt problems anyway. And it's investment driven. So it's a little bit like Biden's infrastructure program, but they managed to stitch it together already in the summer of 
2020. It took another 12 months for it to be activated. But in terms of the politics, this sent a huge signal to the bond market, which is this isn't Eurozone 2.0. And that's huge because then the yields came down, the pressure was off, and they could get on with their national fiscal policies, which carried most of the can. Nevertheless, all told, Europe is lagging far behind the US in terms of the recovery and in terms of the fiscal stimulus that was delivered. Do, do you think they, the European leaders learned a lesson from the Great Recession and the Eurozone crisis that followed? Yes, for sure. And, and, and not all of them. <laughs> you know, there are yeah, recalcitrants. Sure. There are the yeah. Dutch, the, the Austrians. Some of the Germans. Some of the Germans. Yeah. But, but the German politics shifts, right? So we know yeah. Angela Merkel's been chancellor the whole time, but this is a coalition system. So the government that she ruled with during the Eurozone crisis was with the Liberals, the FDP. Small majority, so a small party with a big party adds up to like 55% of the parliament. So narrow majority and a pre-market liberal, quite nationalist party as a coalition partner. This time around, her partner are the SPD, Social Democrats, centre leftists, pro-European and very much in favour of fiscal policy and investment if they get the chance. And also very well connected with other equivalent parties in the rest of Europe, notably in, in France. And a deal was done, which is why we escaped the nightmare that we seem to be headed in between Berlin and Paris. Sometime, we still don't really quite know exactly how it was done, but late April, early May, the signals begin to go green in Berlin. And they say yes to this deal where the debt is put on the books of Brussels. And um, that enables then, as it were, Europe to emerge from this crisis. And I've no doubt at all that the leadership of both the finance ministry, which is in the hands of the Social Democrats, and the people around Merkel herself, have learned. I mean, I've spoken to plenty of them. I know that they read critical histories of that for earlier crisis. They do not want to be the people who repeat, as it were, the the narrow austerity policy yeah. that Germany imposed on Europe twice. And there was right. a very important leader in the Spiegel magazine, which is the most influential weekly magazine in Germany, like Time magazine used to be or Newsweek, but still very impactful. And it was this incredibly powerful statement saying we are being cowardly, we are betraying Europe. We must act. We sh cannot repeat the mistake that we made before. That kind of thing shifts politics. Um, yeah. And it did. So uh, there is real learning there. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Adam, at the risk of sounding somewhat parochial, you know, our team at Civic Ventures fights these fights in cities and states, you know, sort of on the ground in the moment. And I would say that what was really striking was the ease with which we garnered the support and the political will to reject the austerity impulses yep. in our own state very quickly. I mean, th right. those impulses were impossible to stop after the global financial crisis. Um, but in this instance, people had learned enough um, to not do that. Yeah, but I mean, we've really got to pay attention here, right? Because we've got to be attentive to the timeline because we are, in terms of this crisis, essentially in 2009. Right. Mm -hmm. So we are still in that first phase, right? right. And the, the pushback from inside the Democratic administration, Obama's famous belt tightening State of the Union speech, right? That's the beginning of 2010. Yeah, right. So that is the game to watch now is what sort of trade-offs are being done. And that in Europe is where the whole game is going to be. 
because okay. the question is when do the rules come back in and this is the big debate in europe like was what we did in 2020 a precedent for further change positive lessons learned from a previous crisis a precedent set for the future or was it a complete exception that we did for a totally exceptional event, which was this pandemic, for which no one could be blamed, and therefore moral hazard and all those arguments don't apply? Yeah. And it, it is that fight has to be fought, fought exactly as you say, right? There's no, this isn't science. This is persuasion. It's rhetoric. It's a power play. Yeah. Like who will win? Who will lose elections on the basis of what kind of argument is being made? What kind of sway can you exercise? Can you embarrass people in various ways into acting? in your interest. And it's all for playful still. I, 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 would, I would really insist. The, and, and after all, the numbers are spectacular, right? I mean, the levels of debt which we're going to find ourselves at once we do finally begin to exit from this crisis are going to be eye-watering and people are going to have to take, you know, they're really going to have to, you know, um, Avoid panic because it's going to be very easy for scaremongers to come in and say, Correct. look, we've got to drastically cut entitlements. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. Yeah. Um, because the numbers are going to be unprecedented. Can, can, can we talk for just one second about how close we came to utter disaster? I mean, we had the big orange guy in the White House. That had to be yeah. frightening. Yeah. The whole world at yeah. the time. It was, it really was. But again, I'm going to be, you know, a little devil's advocate here. I, mean, I remember, you know, touring... You know, the IMF, for instance, in Washington in 2018, 2019, and folks there were terrified at Trump in the White House, right? And not just Trump in the White House, it's really the Republicans in Congress that are in some senses even more potentially dangerous here. Yeah. And folks were really concerned that America would not be able to act as a stabilizing force in the world economy because of the flat earth attitudes in some parts yeah. of the GOP. You know, and Hank Paulson wouldn't endorse Trump in 2016, literally because he ran the hypothetical and said, imagine Trump had been in charge in 2008, it would have been a disaster. In fact, of course, it turns out that if there ever was a president made for fiat money, who <laughs> saw no problem whatsoever in just writing thousands of checks as long as they had his name on them, it was Donald Trump. Like, the man has not a you know, not a bone of doctrine, principle, yeah. economic theory in his body. He just yeah, doesn't give a damn, right? It's all <laughs> about the markets. It's all about the S&P 500. It's all about business. And it's all about making sure the world, wheels keep spinning. And those, you know, if you have to have a kind of chaotic, simplistic person in charge of the White House, those were the instincts that you wanted in 2020. And so basically, you know, he, the only time he lashed out at Powell, and he really did lash out at Powell in the second week of March, was because Powell was being too slow at the Fed. Once Powell really put the foot on the gas, you didn't hear a word from Trump. Not yeah. one. Because it was all good. That's exactly what he wanted, right? So we saw there, you know, in a crisis like that, sure, I mean, he was terrible on the vaccines and public health, and he's, you know, every liberal fantasy kind of nightmare president. But in terms of populist open-pocketed management of a crisis within a capitalist society, Trump, you know, basically delivered the, the protection that was necessary. And, and frankly, in fairness to him, he was also totally in favor of this in 2008-9. If you, if you go back to the record of his interviews with Fox, it always totally wrong foots the interviews because they're expecting him to come out guns blazing against Obama, and he doesn't. You know, this is before he pivots. So it was, it was, it was, 
it was a very mixed bag from that point of view. And, and also, of course, having a Republican in the White House at that moment means that the GOP is much more likely in Congress to vote for yeah. the stimulus that was necessary. I mean, if we'd had a yeah. Biden in the White House then, God knows what would have happened. You yeah. know, they, they might very well have attempted to obstruct um, as they did to Obama. I mean, they right. he didn't get a single Republican vote for a stimulus package then. Maybe, was it maybe? Maybe he got Susan Collins's, but it was like one, you know, yeah. there was no, no a, scope there. That's a fantastic insight. That That is a fantastic yeah, insight. I, yeah, I guess sending sending people lots of money with your name on it during an election year might make some political sense. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, exactly. And the, the real puzzle, and this is where it gets interesting, is why the hell they couldn't organize a second stimulus in the summer. I know. Right? That's, it's just the craziest the, thing. That's the craziest thing. Right? It's the, the craziest thing. House Democrats have voted for it, so they're on board. And then you end up in this incredible kind of Russian roulette game between Mnuchin and Pelosi and the White House and McConnell that results in nothing, right? That's the apocalypse. I mean, I think you have to distinguish between, when you asked me that question, how close did we get to the complete implosion? I was thinking, do they mean March or do they do they mean November? And, you know, November is when we did. November, December is when we did, in the United States, come close to a full-on crisis, right? There's no more stimulus. The unemployment checks are running out. There's that horrifying few days in December when they've stitched together the second stimulus package and Trump simply won't sign it because he's, you know, he's sulking and he's preferring to play golf in Mar-a-Lago. Like, that's the moment when things really almost came apart. That's the run-up immediately, of course, the 6th of January. Um, but in that March moment, it's kind of extraordinary how the, the political system coalesces around action but then, of course, by the summer, June, Black Lives Matter, culture wars, the whole thing just really begins to fissure in the most dramatic way. It's difficult to exaggerate, I think, the scale of that crisis. And we should not blind ourselves to the risk of a recurrence in future, because there's very little sign, after all, that the GOP is fundamentally changing its spots on this. All um, right. But, you know, America is, is borderline unstable as a political economy in the current moment. Right. Well, no. yeah. I mean, we, this we is don't what call happens. it pitchfork economics for nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. For yeah. Sure. It's also it's also a problem when when you have a, a a two party democracy in which one party is the Democratic Party and the other party is the anti Democratic Party. Yeah. Yes. And especially then, if that I mean, added to which, then the Democratic Party, following on from our earlier conversation, you know is itself, or was until quite recently, you know, hostage to, in the pocket of, run by, influenced by, essentially an upper middle class professional managerial elite, right? Yeah, so, right. correct. You know, so it, it, it was an incredibly lopsided structure. And the emergence, I think, of a vocal left-wing presence within the Democratic Party, along with all of the other voices that speak within that very broad church, is, I think, crucial to balance out and to force, because it's not just a matter of personnel, is it, around Biden? It's the fact that given that there are basically no votes to be had from bipartisan deals, you have to listen to everyone within your own camp. Everyone. You know, obviously, yeah. Manchin has more voice, but the left has a voice too. And that balancing is, is very difficult from the point of view of folks in the White House. But it, but it, it uh, produces a shift in the complexion of policy. And we really saw that with the rescue plan, because that basically came out of Congress, not from the administration. And it, and it was really a very targeted push 
to learn the lessons of 2008-9 and deliver for middle-income and low-income Americans. Yeah, so, for sure. So, so this this raises a point. We've we've learned some lessons from 2008-2009. What are the lessons to learn from 2020 and beyond? You know, the utopian lesson would be things like America needs an unemployment insurance system worthy of the name. <laughs> For instance, you know, mm -hmm. um, wouldn't it be nice if America could do something like the short time working system the Europeans used? Hardly anyone in Europe was laid off. People were just shifted to short time working. So all of the terror of losing your job, struggling to figure out where the next paycheck's going to come from, total reliance on the welfare office was taken out of the equation for Europeans. Their incomes fell in many cases, they have the same shock to their daily lives, but they don't have that terror. Now, that would be, you know, if you were just starting with a fresh blueprint, you'd say a society like America, subject to the economic shocks that it is, desperately needs that. Um, is it likely to happen? Of course not, right? Because it requires a deal between the federal government and the states. And it's, it wasn't done during the New Deal because they couldn't get it done then. It's very difficult to do now. The things I think which we can easily learn are, let's take this seriously as the shock that it was. So this was a pandemic, not just the common and garden economic recession, not even just the big economic recession. It really was a harbinger of the kind of environmental crisis we're going to see coming towards us. We should, even if it turns out to be the case, this thing leaked from a Chinese lab, are there many labs around the world? Yes. Are there some in the United States? Yes. Could we have a biohazard incident there like this or even worse? Of course we could. In any case, we need to be prepared for that kind of eventuality. And one thing that really went right last year, not just the macroeconomic policy, was Operation Warp Speed. You know, you could argue about the details of it. They should have done far more to expand capacity. There's, you know, the contracts could have been stitched in a way that were much better for the American taxpayer. But the ability to generate a virus-beating vaccine, two virus-beating vaccines, not just in the United States, but worldwide, is extraordinary, unprecedented, right? Beginning that year, we'd never done a coronavirus vaccine. Now we've got a whole sweep of them. That is something that we clearly have an interest in building, expanding, having standing ready as a capacity, not just in the US, but worldwide, because the tragedy now is, of course, we haven't developed a global vaccination program. The IMF, Peter Gopinath was just tweeting out the numbers from this morning. We are so far below the promises and commitments that were made to the wider world, it's, 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 it's an absolute scandal. You know, Moderna has basically not delivered anything to the United Nations COVAX package and Pfizer is, I don't know, I think maybe um, less than half of what it's promised by the end of the year. And now we're having to talk about third doses in the US. So we need far more capacity here. We need to be more agile even more than we were and believe in that as a capacity. So that's something that I think you could maybe build bipartisan commitment around. This was, after all, the Trump program. It worked really well in the end. And it's, these are good jobs. Like talk, about, talk about a uh, uh, industrial policy that would really bring huge benefits. Would you rather have a prison or a lab in your constituency? You know, that's, yeah. that's what we should really be offering Congress people is, look, everyone should be party, part of this program of readiness for these kind of risks because this has been anticipated for years. And you'd argue that that this translates to the climate crisis as well. If we if Same we choose logic. to address it, we could. Same problem. This is one of the things we discovered last year, right? Is that, and this is a kind of mantra that runs through the book. John Maynard Keynes, the great British economist, gave a radio program during World War II, and he had this great line, which is that we can afford anything we can actually do. 
money is not the problem, right? Money is a technicality, it's a bookkeeping data, it's a, literally a bookkeeping entry point. The crucial thing is what we can actually organize to do. And we demonstrated the capacity to do vaccines. We should throw money at that until we really have the, you know, that whole risk covered. The same is clearly true for, for climate. It doesn't have to be anything like the war, right? All sensible estimates suggest that we need to be spending, ideally, this is a big number, but after 2020, we should just relax, you know, trillion dollars plus in investment every year for the next 10 to 20 years on all sorts of different things. It's an incredible wide stretch of the things we need to be investing in. Is that a lot of money? Yes, it's, but it's 5% of American GDP, which is a bit more than the Pentagon currently spends on things that would transform America's way of life right. in a positive way. It would reduce pollution. It would create a whole new generation of good jobs. It would make people's houses more livable in. It would reduce their utility bills. And it will save, make a contribution, at least, to saving the planet for our children and grandchildren yeah. and great-grandchildren. Economically speaking, it would pay for itself. Absolutely. And <laughs> many of these technologies now are yeah. not blue sky and don't need much subsidy. You know, I mean, especially renewable energy now, they could be red state technologies, right? There's, there's no reason why the likes of Oklahoma, Nebraska, Ohio, Missouri, Texas should not emerge as green energy giants. They're perfect for it. And, you know, for the GOP to be obstructing on this in the way that it is, to my mind is, I mean, it's part of a, to my mind, inexplicable strategy in which they're essentially failing to offer their vision Conservative yeah. it may be, but their vision of what would actually work for the majority of Americans 20 years from now. Yeah. Um, and it could easily be this. Why, you know, so I have a lot of hope invested in these new muscle cars, you know, these giant trucks they're bringing out, which must appeal to that part of America. Yeah. And they're electric and they're amazing, you know, amazing pieces of engineering. Yeah. So are there any other key insights from your book that we didn't get to talk about? The other thing I think is the globality of this, right? We, we, we touched on this, but that I think is the humbling aspect of that experience. And when I look back at March and I think about my daughter, who's you know, a college student and her generation and how they experience this, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, you know, he gets mocked quite a lot in the Anglosphere. He's this pretentious French guy. And, but he came up with this great phrase when he said that it, this is an anthropological experience, an anthropological shock. It affects literally all humans on the planet at that moment. And generations, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, everyone of a certain cohort, wherever they are in the world, will be able to look back at that moment and ask themselves, okay, where were you? What were you doing? How were you coping? Where did you get your masks from? And there's an aspect of that experience that it would be, you know, it would be awful if that was lost and was just buried under you know, yeah. Chinese-American antagonism or bickering in the Eurozone or the dysfunction of Mexican or Brazilian politics, right? Something happened that actually, I can't remember anything like it, the sense of synchronicity, the concern that you had for what, you know, what was happening in a place thousands of miles away from you, not just because the pictures were moving and it was upsetting, but also because it was going to happen to you. Yeah. So you needed to understand what was happening to them because it was going to happen to you. And our great failure in February was simply to not understand that if something happened in Wuhan, China, which is not Chernobyl, it's not, you know, some place far away that we don't know anything of it. It's a giant, very modern city, very closely connected, it turns out, by airplanes to everywhere else in the world, that that really, really should have concerned us. We somehow relegated that, and I would include myself in this, to 
the China draw, right? That that's something yeah. they're dealing with, and oh my yeah. god, they're going to have to deal with it. We didn't understand that if it was happening right. to them, it was going to happen to us six weeks later. Yeah. Well, and it happened in Seattle, Washington. Yes. Exactly. Before it happened to anywhere else. Yeah. And we, <laughs> we were there, we and we didn't understand that either, right? Yeah. Just well, but of... it scared the living shit out of the people in Seattle, Washington. I'll tell you that. That we were we were prepared in a way that a lot of the rest of the country yeah. wasn't, because we've yeah. been. Yeah. We'd been planning, uh, our public health system had been planning for uh, a flu pandemic as the, the number one uh, crisis, um, uh, emer our emergency management system for 15, 20 years. We'd Since been SARS, presumably, right? Because you, I think, did, did Seattle have a big SARS outbreak? We, no. We, we didn't, we didn't so but Canada, it's just it? the, the nature of avian flu. They expected it would start in China and uh, hit... British Columbia and the Pacific North, the rest of the Pacific Northwest first. Yeah, we always expected it would be here first because of our close trade ties yeah. uh, to that part of the world, and it did hit here first. And um, you know, part preparation, part culture, uh, we ended up being one of the least affected parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. even New York, after all. I mean, it was a disaster in March and April, but since then. This city has sort of managed it, right? We haven't we haven't been through the, you know, obviously I've got family in London, and they went through a series of cycles of opening up, locking down. Yeah. And and we haven't been in, in New York through any of this. So there's also a lesson here about our ability to cope, but we do need to reckon with the fact that we are sitting on a massive runaway nuclear style reaction here, right? Our world, the way in which we occupy it as modern, you know, people in modern societies with hugely sophisticated, rich economies, exploiting nature to the extent that we do. This is a absolutely precarious existence that we live in. And, and we really have to be on the ball, right? That alertness yeah. that you're talking about in Seattle is crucial because this isn't, it's a bit different from climate change in that climate change operates over time horizons which are longer. The immediate shocks, a hurricane or whatever, come quick. But the problem itself is over a long time horizon. This is, speaking the idiom of my earlier historical work, this is blitzkrieg, right? If you do not contain this within the first hours, the first days, you're done. You've lost. Yeah. You've lost that first encounter. And then it'll take you months, if not you know, longer than that, to claw your way back to stability, which is what New York experienced. So that alertness and that willingness to expand our imaginations to the horizon that says, oh, this is really for real, right? no joke. If that just happened in Wuhan, if they just had to shut Beijing down, you know, nothing should be off the table. We, we need to be talking about the possibility of shutting JFK. If, if Cuomo... And I had the sense to say, look, we need to start talking about ending air traffic to New York. Now, we would not have had the disaster that we did in March. And yeah. April. Of course, it was unthinkable. You know, yeah. I'm no, not no, blaming no. him personally. It's just he's right. indicative of the fact that none of us could conceive that. Yeah. So final question. Why do you do this work? Um, oh, my God. Uh, we ask everyone this question, just uh, so you know. Good, right. <laughs> Well, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know it's certainly in March last last year, I felt a sense of shared responsibility with, with colleagues that were trying to make sense of this, this situation that we were all in. And we had invested a lot of effort in trying to make sense of 2008, 9, 10. And so 
it was time to pony up and you know see whether the ways in which we tried to make sense of that moment could help us understand what was happening. And they did. And um, in certain ways we've talked about, they actually help policymakers also make sense of the situation. And I think that's my, my sense of, of what I do nowadays is really that sort of like journalists like yourselves, like being part of the public conversation about how we navigate, how we navigate um, the crises that we face in, in the 21st century. And as a historian, hoping that, as it were, my experience in thinking through those earlier moments can serve, if you like, as almost like a mental gym. You know, you've, as it were, tested yourself against some pretty heavy weights. And, and now, okay, maybe that helps us, gives us some confidence and just skill and some insight into how that we might make sense of, of, of truly dramatic and novel things that lie ahead for us. That's fantastic. Uh, fantastic yeah. answer, indeed. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being with us. It's been an absolutely mesmerizing conversation. Um, and best of luck with the new book. Thank you. Yeah. Look forward to chatting again. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. The thing that I would underscore the most is his point about the scale of the shared experience mm-hmm. and how that is virtually unique in human experience. And it really is true, right? Like I find it in my own life that whenever you talk to people today and whenever you meet someone new, the conversation almost inevitably drifts to what was your quarantine experience? What, how, what, was, what was it like for you and your family mm-hmm. when the pandemic began and how did you respond and what did you do and how has your life changed throughout this process? And I mean, it, it's true that I've never had another experience like this. And I actually asked my mom, who is 88 years old now, if World War II was similar. And she said, look, I was a little girl during that th- those days, so I was somewhat unaware of what was going on. But definitely, this was far more impactful. I mean, you know, in the city in which she lived, which was Philadelphia, I mean, there were gold stars on people's houses when, some, when a loved one had been killed in battle or something like that. And, you know, a bunch of the men were gone. But life life was normal for the people who were at home effectively. I mean, certainly from the point of view of a, of a kid, definitely my kids will never forget the pandemic. <laughs> it was, right. you know, it was a super impactful thing on their lives. It was a beautiful time to be two years old. If you lived in a, in a prosperous family, it was just like mom and dad were home a lot more. But I kind of, it keeps coming into my mind. I kind of compare it, the experience to nine 11 but it going on day after day, yeah, month after month, with the entire world at once, and which with a much higher death toll, and and I bring that up because of how how disruptive it's been in in similar ways. I mean, I remember those first weeks in March uh, and April. You know, we live here in Seattle, where there's a bunch of airports, and it's this north south city, and you hear airplanes all the time, but you weren't hearing airplanes. I'd wake up in the morning and be total silence, no airplanes overhead. And that was eerily 
familiar, uh, just like in the days following 9-11, but also similarly the way 9-11 had permanent impact on our lives. It's, again, with air travel, it's changed air travel forever. It's changed the experience at the airport. And, you know, the whole thing with the masks, I understand why some people don't like mask mandates. I think we're going to be wearing them forever. I mean, I, I just think it's going to be a normal part of our lives that might not be mandated, but people are going to be wearing masks in public and it won't be strange. And uh, it's just going to be normal here like it has been in Asia for a very long time. Um, and, you know, I I don't think that people are going to work from home exclusively forever, but there will be a lot more work from home. Uh, it's hard to know all the ways it's going to change our lives and change our cities and change change the country. But I think some of this is, well, as permanent as anything is in human civilization. Right. I, if there is one positive thing to come out of this, Nick, is, and I think it's a very important observation he makes in the book, this idea that, you know, this was not the deadliest pandemic we've ever had, and yet we we shut down the world. Right. We shut down the world economy. And the, he, he quotes in the book, uh, somebody says, we did it because we could. We could yeah. afford to do it. Yeah. And so we we did it. And, and in our interview, uh, Adam mentions this quote from from John Maynard Keynes saying that we can afford to do the things that we actually can do. Right. And so we did a lot of extraordinary things uh, in response to the pandemic in an effort to save lives and to save livelihoods. And we did these things because we could. And yeah. he's absolutely right that this translates to climate change as well, that yeah, these big things that we need to do, they're absolutely within our ability to do them. Sure. If we choose to do them, right. it's not a question of what can we afford. It's a question of what can we actually technically do. And there's so right. many things we can technically do that not only would reduce carbon emissions, but would improve our lives in so many other ways. Right. Absolutely. And just a reminder, the book actually comes out today. Today, when it's September 7th, when this podcast is released, it is now available. Uh, we'll provide a link in the show notes where you can order the book or order it from your favorite bookstore. Uh, get it today. And also, if you if you love it, uh, like me, I'd go and look at uh, the catalog of Adam Tooze's books and uh, download those as well, because I think there's some really important themes that run through all of them. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.